I really had no interest in going to my reunion. I haven't been any, ever, not any place I attended. Really, they're pretty easy to avoid for the most part. Although with the advent of social media, those types who stay involved have far more options to find you than they did in the past, especially if you're a man. Or a woman who doesn't change her name. Seems an awful waste of a perfectly reasonable alumni protection program when a woman adds her maiden name, either parenthetically or maybe as a subtitle time arrangement in social media. They're just asking to be found, and what is the fun in that? It means you will be called or emailed by someone on the reunion committee. And yet, I do not actually dislike reunions wholesale and without exception. Rather, I'm loath to attend my own reunion. Yours, on the other hand? Yours I will gladly attend. Need a date? I am there. People I don't know? Awkwardly discussing how things have turned out? Or avoiding that conversation and instead focusing on sports teams, local municipal changes, or the state of their aging parents' minds and bodies? Fascinating. Oh, I become David Frost and Barbara Walters with the son of Terry Gross, alternately putting at ease and prying into the lives of people I plan never to see again. Maybe I won't go to the reunion. Really, I won't be missed. Even though my brother pretty much told the main person who might care that I was going to be in town this very same weekend. And that person cares only insofar as it'll up the attendance numbers. A rivalry between those who spearhead these festivities every year, I'm told. As it is, I will not be the person traveling the furthest to the reunion. I've already been told that. Eric Weber is coming from Mobile, so unless there is some unforeseen surprise guest, he gets that honor. He's married now. His wife's name is Erica, my brother dutifully reports. My brother never married. Has never married, I should say. It's not like it couldn't happen. Yet it always feels that way. He's not that much older than me, really. Getting closer and closer in age as we get older. He's turning 50 this year. Ringo is turning 55, we think, like I care. And now, folks, it's definitely Suck It To Me time. Oh, that's cute. Really cute. Do me. Here's a tip for you. If you're going on a road trip and are planning to listen to some epic audiobook, say Game of Thrones, because you're totally out of the cultural loop and this would be a good time to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, do not try to update your Audible app immediately before leaving. I realize most people are smarter than me about this, both in knowing how to figure out how the improvement rendered the previously idiot-proof app totally derelict, and moreover, who know not to try an update when you plan to depend on this companionship, but it bears repeating. Oh, go on. Really suck it to me. But all of a sudden, my car audio system and audiobook app require me to broker some form of peace accord, and in the absence of this ability on my part, no 33 hours of promised distraction. So, instead of cultural literacy, I pop in the disc that Scott handed me as I was leaving to buffer against the sea of country talk and contemporary Christian stations that I'd be driving through. Mixtape, I say. Mixtape. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, he says. I still haven't figured out what that would be, I say, as I always do. Perfect.
Although I think he suspects there is something I'm thinking about doing, even though I myself have not fully admitted it to myself. I try to lure him along. We can spend the night in the bed and breakfast shaped like a giant dog, I say. It's a couple hours north of Boise, but enticements for Scott are few and far between in Idaho. The best part of my mother dying last year was that he would not have to go to Idaho anymore. The lore of a chainsaw dog art gallery wouldn't do it. The best part of my mom dying for me was that I could tell myself that my brother Keith would be free. He's the one that stayed local while I ran away. He moved back in with mom when it became clear that she'd stopped paying bills and started showing up everywhere without a coat. She had hit it well for quite a while, too long. We lost chances to sit with her and listen. Well, I did. Keith was there with her. I asked for moments, then he just kind of shrugs. She called me James as often as she called me Keith, he said, at least as often. She didn't know you weren't here. I don't detect any bitterness when he says this. She always got Ringo's name right, though, he says. It was the only thing she never forgot. Again, I detect no bitterness. You may note that I do not have that same ability. Ringo is our oldest brother. Named Ringo because, like Ringo, he has a prominent beak. And Ringo was always Mom's favorite beetle, anyway. That's what she would say. I always interpreted it to mean that she found his plainness in some way accessible, not as threatening as the prettiness of the other three. And if you don't buy Lennon as a pretty young man, not as intellectually challenging. I used to take this choice as an indication that my mom sold herself short. This was not a sentiment shared by my father and the female undergraduates he taught, it would seem. Ringo was Dad's idea, supposedly. He grew to regret it. But then when Dad died a couple years later, the joke was no longer on him, it was on me. I hated Ringo, more than he ever did. And with my father dead, Ringo now hated me the most right back. And now Ringo's sick. Keith seems more broken up about this than about Mom last year, almost. Funny how I often the Shirley Bassey disco version of This Is My Life pushes through my thoughts, and I know the disc is coming to an end. Again. I've lost how many times I've now played it, but it has kept me sane and disrupted my wallowing countless times on this drive. Score another for Scott. I decide to stop at Hawkins Packout and get Keith a burger with ham on it and a corn dog and sweet potato fries for Ringo. Those are his favorites. He said he hasn't been eating. I haven't really eaten on the trip, I realize, and I'm not really hungry, so I get a BLT, which I find the least depressing thing on the menu. When I pull up bearing food, it brings a weak smile to Keith's face as he hugs me in that heads-apart way that we have come to hug over the years. That stuff is terrible for him, he says. I shrug. Doesn't matter. He's quiet. I pull out a fry and can hear Ringo's hoarse, wheezing cough as the door opens. Hey, dimwit, I say, holding out the fry, acting nonchalant. What are you doing, Marshal McLuhan? Mother always loved you best, he says, taking the fry with none of the speed he's always had, but eyeing me with all the same animosity. 
I pull out the corn dog and carefully tuck it into his cage as far away as I can, in the event that he was just messing with me and suddenly decided he wanted my blood again. He moves to the corn dog. His movements look painful, as Keith has told me, but he doesn't eat it, instead perching on the wooden stick protruding from the dog. See, says Keith. Yeah, I see. I finger the hard notch on the top of my right ear, where Ringo took out a chunk in a dive bomb attack when I was six. It had been mended in a rather inexpert manner, sewn back together with the cartilage fusing together in a slight point. Do you know you have a Spock ear? Yeah, I've been told. I put the rest of the fries in the cage, closer to him this time. Suck it to me! Ringo wheezes, eyeing me with his no longer sparkling eyes. You know it, jackass. My mother may have forgotten who I was, but sure as hell Ringo hasn't. We go into the kitchen to eat. The living room of Mom's house, which I guess I should start thinking of as Keith's house, has always been dominated by the huge flight cage. Keith stares at me while he eats the burger. It dawns on me that he doesn't look like he's been eating either. When my father got Ringo from my mother, they had been trying to have children for a couple of years and having no luck. He chose the blue and gold macaw because of the blue for Boise State, where he taught geology, and the gold for University of Idaho, where my mom taught geology. Go Vandals. Macaws had the intelligence of a slow kindergartner and the emotional capacity of a two-year-old, and they can live past 50 years old. 50 years as a toddler with a brain smart enough to manipulate you and execute practical jokes and hold a grudge. Right, Ringo? I guess it seemed like a good substitute for a baby, having a toddler for decades. <laughs> I can't pretend to understand this even now. When Keith was born a couple years later, Ringo was not thrilled, but seemed to make peace with it. He hated my father more, for some reason, and my father, it seems, used that as a convenient excuse not to be around the house. There were always young women who were fascinated by rocks and desperately needed mentoring during those years. After the attack, Mom invested in the big flight cage, and I was given a special knock. I would knock on the door, and Ringo would be banished to his jail, not allowed to perch contentedly on my mother's shoulder, and fly freely around the house, as he could when I was not home. When it would come to disputes, my mother would take his side. You know he's only a baby, she would say, when he shredded the report I'd been working on for a week and left on the table. He didn't know what he was doing. Oh, he knew. And he knew I knew he knew. You bet you sweet baby. Almost everything he learned to say, he learned from TV before I was born. Laugh-in, mostly. I guess my parents must have repeated those things. Or maybe they just spoke to his bird brain in a way other things didn't. He generally didn't watch TV, preferring to destroy things, if he had a chance. It was a strange day when I learned that Marshall McLuhan was a real person after hearing the bird mention him for as long as I could remember. I need to get some sleep, so I bid Keith goodnight and promise to take Ringo to the vet in the morning, as long as he agrees that he'll get him into the travel cage. In the end, Keith decides he doesn't even want to come to the vet with me. He's been unable to talk about this, unable to bring Ringo for fear of what the vet will say. I know he is conflicted. 
Mom made me executor of her estate. I would make sense of the rental property she'd bought after her father died. Keith was made conservator of her living will and of Ringo. It was something we joked about, that she trusted Keith more with her DNR. I was too much of a heartless bastard to be trusted with the plug. But I always found the humor rather limited. Ringo is old, said the vet, even by Macaw standards. He appeared to have arthritis, and palpating his thin body suggested several tumors. Does he purr anymore, he asked. I don't know, I told him, but really he only ever purred for my mom, and she's been gone a year now. He suggests it may be old age and a wasting disease found in parrots, but it could be a digestive tract issue and suggests that they image his GI tract and also get an idea of the masses. They'll need to sedate him to do this. No stone unturned, I say, in consent, because in the end I believe that my mom would have done this, and thus that is what Keith would like, even if it means caring for Ringo even longer. We had both thought that the vet would suggest putting him down. After all, that's why I drove. But okay, image away. I was sent home to wait with Keith for the news. Which came around two. Ringo did not wake up from the sedation. He died in his sleep. Did he have any last words? I asked. None to report, it seems. Though I suspect they'd not bothered to focus on that, and I do not blame them. He would be cremated that night. Keith sat in the quiet house with the enormous empty cage. I tried to distract him. Come with me to the reunion tonight, I say. He looks at me kind of blankly. I think the years of caring for Mom and Ringo are sinking in and weighing him into his chair. I don't know anyone in your class, he says. Nonsense, I say. Most of them have stayed local like you. I'm sure you know more than I do. It'd be no fun. Then you'll fit right in, I say, but it's a losing battle, I know. Not that I really want him to go. Not that I really want to. Or do I? I don't know. I bought a ticket to the dinner online before I started the drive, just in case. When I get to the Basque Center, I take stock of the room. Lit in a way to forgive 25 years, but not the 25-plus pounds that have been collected as if there's been some kind of pact. Yes, this is middle age. I know, in theory, that I'm part of this demographic, but I'm not fully prepared to have it laid bare here in between the banquet tables. The women especially. They all look like nice ladies. The ladies who were friends with your mother. My name tag has my senior picture on it. No honorific. I was not most likely to anything. I really wanted most likely to leave, but if I remember correctly, the advisor, Mrs. Meyer, failed to see the school spirit in that. I ask at the table if Heather is there yet. Oh, yeah, she's in there somewhere. I look again, disappointed that she doesn't immediately stand out. Surely my prom date, my senior year girlfriend, had to be the most stylish among this herd. I wince at myself for thinking that. Heard. Oh, what I need is a drink. I've needed it since yesterday. I order the least offensive beer and decide to look for Heather in earnest. Finally, I see her, 
standing in front of the display of classmates who have died in the last 25 years. An even dozen? I wonder if that's good or bad, comparatively, before I think to look and see if I know any of them. Four I remember fairly well. Hi, Heather People's Heart, I say, apparently married to this fellow Heart. She threw her arms around me as the fellow Heart returned holding drinks. Not from our school, according to his name tag. I look at her. Yep, this is her, but not as I would have thought. The aggressively wash-and-wear hairdo with blonde highlights, no doubt hiding gray, has none of the devious rule-breaker who dressed me in her clothes so we could both go to a bar, because they let in girls, even if you look young and you make a pretty girl. They live in Utah. He works for IBM. They have two teenagers. He's at her elbow as we reminisce. I didn't think you were coming, she says. Tell her about Ringo. Your mother's bird? She laughs and shows her husband my ear. He finally excuses himself to look at the dessert table, and I have my opening. You know, Heather, pretty casual. I was thinking about that wardrobe malfunction you had at prom, and it occurred to me later that maybe it was a complete accident. <laughs> she laughs. Are you just figuring that out, James? We were alone, and the zipper of my strapless dress just explodes. And all of a sudden, you're MacGyver with your handkerchief and a stapler, but instead of making a bomb, you're sparing the world the sight of boobs. I knew then, of course, I'd been suspecting, but the real question is... How much longer did it take you to know? But why didn't you try to show me the way by sleeping with me? <laughs> Almost everyone in my age has a story of high school fumbling and realization that sex with a woman was a really foreign thing. I do not have that funny story. I do not have the high school sex story. Yes, you do, she says. That is it. It's not a sex story if I'm not naked in it. Are those the rules? Yes. I really think a lot of high school sex stories are almost fully clothed, she says. You know, we can slip away and remedy this. This is met with a smirk and a raised eyebrow. Taking the bait. You know, second bite of the apple. Isn't that what reunions are for? I'm smooth. Let me get this straight. You want me to go off somewhere here in the Basque Center, presumably, to try to have sex with you now so that it can affirm to you that you do not want to have sex with me? When you put it like that, I can see where it might not be so enticing. It's been interesting seeing you, James. I'm sorry, I'm in a funk about the bird. You hated that bird. I know. I guess she'll laugh about it with her husband later. When I get home, Keith is watching hoarders and eating frozen pizza. His eyes are red. I sit in the chair next to him. The recliner that used to be our mother's, with the mechanism to help her stand that we got her when she started having knee issues. Says nothing as he chews. I just can't get to the garbage. I wake up there in the morning. I offer to start dismantling the cage while I'm there. It's a monster. No, he says. I'll put it on Craigslist's. I need pictures. Soon he trails off. He says it with the S on the end. I wonder how many macaws are in Boise. Attend the vet calls to say the ashes are ready to be picked up. Are you sure you don't want to come with me? I ask. He knows the reason I drove instead of flew. He knows that he thought we were going to have to DNR the damn bird. The fact that Ringo saved us the trouble and conveniently died is probably the only time in his 55-plus years he ever saved anyone any trouble. But he just says, I can't. 
Okay. There's almost no traffic on US 95. Rome is about two hours away, and I get there in an hour and a half. The Pillars of Rome. My mother loved this place. It's just fossil-bearing clay, and it's so lovely. You could almost feel her heart grow as it absorbed the surroundings. Monument Valley Light, I once said, wounding her more than I could understand. I was there almost exactly a year ago with Keith. I retrace our steps among the huge formations. Clouds are filtering sunlight, letting it fall in cascades of ghosts and dancing shadows. I have the small cardboard box in my pocket. I swear it's still warm as I pull it out. Retracing the steps that Keith and I took scattering mom's ashes last year, I opened the box and lightly shook it as I walked. Mother always loved you best, I said. Getting On with James Urbaniak, Episode 20, Ringo, was written by Julie Anderson and performed by James Urbaniak. It was produced by James Urbaniak and Dustin Marshall. This program is part of the Feral Audio Network. Visit feralaudio.com for prior episodes and other podcasts. I was standing by my window on one cold and cloudy day When I saw Bye.